Hello and welcome to Life Beyond the Numbers, the podcast for people who are curious about how to have a more fulfilling work life. We live in a world largely driven by numbers, logic and reason. But how we feel at work and about our work impacts us, our organisations and society. There is a relationship between the numbers of our organisations and the life beyond the numbers. I'm Susan Michrielon, your host. I've lived and worked in many countries. I've met people who love what they do and people who don't. People who bring their full selves to work and people who won't. But one thing that I've learned that is common to us all is that we are all unique and have unique experiences. And it's helpful to know that there are others who think like we do, or have had struggles too, or have gone where we want to go, or can show us things we didn't know. So join me and my guests as we place a lens on the human side of work life by sharing insights, stories and strategies to inspire you to let your uniqueness shine through. Well, today I am delighted to welcome Phil Dorman to Life Beyond the Numbers. Phil, you're so welcome. Oh, thank you, Susan. It is an absolute joy to to be here. That's great. And joy. See, that's such a a strong word to get going with. And I, I can feel that, actually. I can see it in your face and I feel the joy. And that's something that struck me reading through your website is you talk about how every one of us has the capacity to deliver meaningful impact in the world and find fulfillment and joy in the process. And I always say that life beyond the numbers, the podcast is for people who want to have a more fulfilling work life. So what does fulfillment mean to you, Phil? Oh, that's like a tongue twister. (laughs) (laughs) Fulfillment for me, it means two things that are kind of held in tension and coexist at any given moment. On one level, fulfillment is a journey towards something right I want to impact this world I want to leave the world a better place than I found it my spin on that is this world that we live in is fundamentally awesome and it should be awesome and everyone should be able to enjoy that awesomeness I don't know why I fixed on that particular very American adjective but like it's great right for me the discovery of that happened I think in my sort of 20s on yoga retreats and traveling to places where nature's really wild and you connect and can feel the kind of interconnectedness of all things and it and you feel vibrant and alive and you know you exist in some vibrant alive ecosystem right I don't think the natural environment's the only place to tap into that like for me that's where it happened and then you look around you go well that's amazing and we live on that planet and there's yeah, there's plenty of us as human beings, but there's not so many that the planet can't support us. We should all be able to experience that. But my God, we're not. Even those of us that have had some experience of that probably don't spend the majority of our time with that sense of connection. And in that space, we lose it and we get distracted from it. And there's so many people on the planet that don't have the privilege to be able to access that at all. 
or experience it ever potentially right but why not it seems so obvious that we should be able to and it's right there so like and the route to that has to be an inner one before it's an outer one i've found my way through various spiritual practices over the years but now i practice the mindfulness and meditation in the tradition of a monastery in france called plum village it's founded by a guy called Thich Nhat han who's sort of a big name in the world of mindfulness right and uh, i saw a talk from one of the nuns there recently it was a countdown to zero some ted event about the environment and she said first and foremost what we have is not a crisis of technology it's not a crisis actually of the environment it's a crisis of consciousness right if we all were able to inhabit be aware of be conscious of the fundamental interconnectedness that we all share and by all i don't mean just human beings i mean everything all these silly decisions we make that lead to massive inequality in society and lead to the climate crisis that we now face we wouldn't be making them the technology to turn the things around it, it exists everything's there that needs to be there for this world to be as autumn as it could be the only thing standing in the way is us and our mindset and our lack of mindfulness and awareness so fulfillment for me is a trajectory of contributing to more and more people having that awareness that's part of the solution on one side and then in the here and now it is being personally connected to myself to those around me so fulfillment exists on these two levels right that was a long long monologue around it but a, a trajectory a goal are working towards but also a, a here and now living in line with what matters most to me living in the way that i want to live acting in that way and that's accessible in every single moment so yeah those two things not big concepts at all are they oh no 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 i mean i think the podcast interview is done we can go home (laughs) (laughs) so i mean there was a lot in there and and i suppose i'd like to go back to the inner route yeah, that's one of the things that that struck me. What you said was, it starts with the inner root before the outer root. Now, I would imagine we have that completely back to front. So for the most part, we start with our outer root. Yeah. Until we discover, if we do, that there is an inner root. You say it in your 20s, you did a lot of travel and yoga and da, 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 and all yeah. of us at some point, or not all of us, but many of us yeah. at some point, yeah. discover this inner root. And oftentimes it's not a pleasant one because something happens that makes us question life and why are we here and all of that. So is there a way, not necessarily of speeding up the process, but of making that I mean it's accessible to everybody but if there's a crisis of consciousness how do we Mm. raise consciousness around inner root I guess there's a big and difficult to implement solution to that is that should sit at the heart of our education system right there's fundamental 
massive shift that needs to happen in how we educate our children. Not being an educational policymaker, quite a disempowering topic, right? Being a parent, it's quite a disempowering topic. My wife and I, we've got two kids, 16 and 12, and we've long since accepted that the decisions we make about our children's education are ones of compromise and the sort of ideal that we would like to exist doesn't exist and it's about navigating them through what does exist in a way that is best for them and maintains our sanity but that's one solution right and I think like everything else about the climate sort of crisis and and I do think it's a crisis of consciousness first and foremost it's then a crisis of humanity rather than one of climate because I think the planet will probably work itself out one way or the other but we probably won't be here anymore unless we get our act together and that would not be pretty. But those huge systemic changes, I must admit, over the last couple of years, I've been a lot of mental energy exploring that space and getting very passionate about it. But it's very disempowering because what can I do beyond vote and protest, right? So the other route is accessible to everyone. And I find myself constantly challenged by it which is the only way to drive that consciousness forward and raise it is through conversation is through like calmly engaging people where they are and and in many ways it's why I'm a coach right because it forces me to show up in the right way because probably part of me wants to just scream at people and go why don't we work but it doesn't work right and I went to Plum Village a couple of years ago and I remember being really challenged by their version of it was found you know Thich Nhat Hanh first and foremost became known because he was a peace activist rather than just a, a monk right but his position and it continues to be the position of Plum Village is the only way forward is one through mindfulness and people finding their own way, which feels painfully slow at times, right? That you can't sort of protest or scream at people into them changing their minds. And we see it in the streets of London, right? With Just Stop Oil and prior to that with Extinction Rebellion. Like, I think they're really vital parts of the conversation and they do raise awareness, but in and of themselves, they create as much resistance as they create progress. So it's the sort of quiet voice that meets people where they are and doesn't scream at them, understands, listens, coaches, right, with no expectation of outcome, just meets people where they are and shows up calmly, clearly, mindfully, willing to listen. Yeah, that's why I pursue the career I do. I fail consistently to live in line with those principles, but it's my intention and desire, right? That's so interesting because it struck me you use the word protest and your the name of your business is not neutral. Yeah. So yeah. you could almost say it is a protest or you're taking a stand. And what is that stand then? Where does the name come from, Phil? Yes, the name of my business comes from a quote from a Brazilian philosopher and actually an educator first and foremost called Paulo Freire and that quote was on a poster on a wall by the stairs at a friend's house when I was a teenager that's where I saw it I can place the exact poster I managed to find it through a google search that exact poster and there's a picture of it on my website and the quote says 
to wash one's hands of the struggle between the powerful and the powerless is not to be neutral, it's to side with the powerful. My work, what I do, is not as political as that, I've got to say. I'm a capitalist at heart. I believe in free enterprise and that business is critical for for human beings to thrive, right? So my politics doesn't fully align with people like Power of Ferry. But the underlying principle of we always stand for something, right? And fulfillment and success in a way that's going to feel like success for you deep to your core, that inner root, is going to come from actively choosing that thing that you stand for. We are not neutral. Fundamentally, as human beings, we are never neutral. We never bang in the middle, standing for nothing. We're always taking a side. So choose which side you're on. I guess the more politically, societally engaged bit of me has stands for raising consciousness, for recognising interbeing, is how Thich Nhat Hanh describes it, that interconnectedness, the fabric of which we're all part. It, pro- professionally, the way I translate that into the work I do is by helping the people I work with to work out what they stand for. I'm politically agnostic about what they choose to stand for. It's about them choosing though, right? And that I see as the work. So that's why my company is called that. It's about knowing what you stand for, deciding what you stand for. Uh, Yeah. And I I really like that because you said choose which side. We always have a side. And I think we get on to the trajectory of work a typical career we come out of uni we get into the trajectory of work we see the ladder that we're going to climb where success is the reward at the top blah 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 we have no time for inner root it's all outer and yeah do we even know then what we stand for so i think some people do right but they're definitely the exception not the rule at some young age relatively young age like intuitively inherently know what they're about right whether they've got you know a values set of values up on a wall or a purpose statement I doubt it right some people do I know some people have that sense of certainty and confidence I think that's very unusual right that's the exception and it it, it is what it is I think it's unhealthy to assume that we're going to have that I think the vast majority of people and I certainly include myself in this, like, don't have a clue. And then to your point before, like, some external event will happen, which will bring home that lack, right? Will bring home the fact, oh my goodness, I don't really know who I am, what I'm about. I've allowed that to be defined by external factors, right? For many people I grew up with, I went to a private school here in London. Um, There were lots of things you just took for granted that you worked hard and you looked to get good A-levels. And then for many of my uh, peers, it was like you then tried to get into a top university. And from there, you got into some kind of professional services career. And those professional services companies, whether it's like PwCs or big law firm or McKinsey, Bain, whatever, they're great at defining that route for you right then choosing for you what you're going to stand for and you go you've got this you rise up to this level and you get to associate director and then somewhere up there's partner and 
there's a path that's laid out for you and the people that are going to thrive there are the people that accept that and want to go for it right but even there there probably comes a point and I think it is when you get to those upper echelons where suddenly there's nobody else defining who you are or what you're about like so in the leadership trajectory there comes a point where you stick your head above the parapet and you go actually I need to actively choose or I need to define what I'm about right so a lot of the people I work with are at that career stage it seems to be somewhere in their 30s that again that just happens to be the people I've ended up working with I don't know if that's universally true circumstantial but it's certainly a trend in my limited sample size of people who are in sort of scale up fast growing world it's people that have been on the team and are now stepping into an executive role in the business like exec teams in those fast growing businesses generally there isn't one for a while and then there's one by default which is just the founders and a couple of other people and then at some point some recognition is oh we need a proper leadership structure and generally two types of people join that team people that are trusted inside the business are rising up or, or people that are parachuted in because they've been there done that either parachuted in by an investor or through the network right I tend to work with the people that are rising up into and actually there's a whole heap of imposter syndrome am I good enough am I capable god these are people I used to report to now they want me to be a peer and you know have my own opinion so that's a real inflection point in that kind of career trajectory which forces people to go oh yeah I need to make a choice about what I want to stand for I think there's loads of other triggers, major changes to like your life circumstance. Obviously, people's relationships with their parents loom large over who they are and what they choose to do. So often the death of a parent can force some real reconsideration about who am I and what I want out of life. Health issues, people burning out, realizing, oh, my goodness, I've been putting all my effort and energy into something and I've used it all up. And I, actually, now that I've used it all up and reflect, I really don't care about that thing I used all my energy up on, right? Yeah. Yeah, I, that makes me feel a bit sad, the thought of that, that we do tend to get, and I can speak from experience as well, but put so much of ourselves into something and then mm. it's gone. And there's an anticlimax because, yeah, where do I go from here? And actually, did it even matter? And so on. So there's a, another crisis there. There's a crisis of confidence or a crisis of not confidence in the confidence to be a leader but confidence yeah. in your own self-worth yeah. an identity an identity crisis perhaps yeah yeah and I guess my perspective is if your life is all defined by and shaped by those extrinsic factors that outer journey as you describe it that those moments are going to be inevitable right because you're attaching your self-worth and you're associating your personal growth and everything else to certain external things and those external things if it's a goal you achieve it what next if it's buying a house or having a family again those like personal goals you achieve it and then it's sort of what what next so as long as you're defining things by those external factors I think those moments of doubt and your confidence being shaken are inevitable if you're sort of defining your journey as one of self-discovery and growth actually I think those moments of doubt and lack of confidence still happen right they're unavoidable they're an unavoidable part of being human 
but I guess you can frame them and approach them with curiosity and as an opportunity to learn and grow rather than them leading to your whole sense of self-worth and what you hang your self-esteem off all collapsing down on you, right? And often I think it's also a sign that you really care. Because yeah. if you didn't care, then you would just go out there and blah, blah, blah your way through anything. <laughs> Whereas when you really care, you want to make sure that you're representing something in the best possible way that can be of value to others. For me, I think that's one of the things that brings up that doubt or uh, imposter syndrome or whatever you want to call it. It's a drive to be as helpful as possible. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, sometimes I wish I cared a lot less. <laughs> yeah, right. you see, I can remember saying that at work one time, like to the head of HR, yeah. the director of HR saying, you know, it would just be so much easier if I didn't care as much. Yeah. And I think if you define success by those external factors, it's a lot easier if you care less, right? I worked for a sort of super pioneering very culture heavy, as in invested a lot of energy and time in culture, innovation consultancy, a company called What If for many years. And uh, inherently, that was a business packed full of people that cared a lot, right? They got really invested in the innovation product. They, did. they really cared about like creating breakthrough new stuff that delivered value to consumers and met consumers' needs on the one hand. And then the bit of the business I worked in that was all about helping our clients build the right culture, structure, capabilities for innovation. We really cared about unleashing the creativity of uh, of their people or most of the consultants did but loads of those consultants made quite bad leaders because they cared so much about the work that they weren't able to be sort of objective about what was right for the business and that created trouble for years and then they found a way through that and people that found their way into leadership who were perhaps less wedded to the practice of being a consultant and better leaders as a result. But then when the business got acquired by Accenture, that really brought home the challenge of caring so much because to survive and not just survive, to go beyond surviving, to thriving somewhere like Accenture, you need to be much more selfish, I would say, about your own career progression and about what matters and what doesn't and much more choiceful. So sort of, Try to get along with people and look after them and make sure people are happy, which is probably caring gone too far anyway. But that became a real danger, right? And it was the people that were a bit more blinkered in a way and could focus who did really well. Whereas, yeah, pe people that kind of really cared about the quality of the work and the craft of the work really struggled. And many of them, myself included, have moved on, mm. right? And I um, guess there's some inner work involved in that as well, because actually yeah. there is a balance. We can do both. We don't need to be one or the other. Because uh, absolutely. We, yeah, yeah. Absolutely we don't. And I don't think that to be successful requires being careless, regardless <laughs> of how you d d dimension care. But it's hard not to look around and go, oh, yeah, loads of these really successful business people and founders and stuff are seemingly not particularly caring right they sit in the get shit done focus don't care about breaking a few eggs along the way right kind of bracket whereas I think the leaders that deeply care and have that human connection and drive really successful businesses 
are harder to find. But I think they're the ones we should be idolizing. They're the people we should be trying to incubate more of, right? Yeah, yeah because in a way, if my leader doesn't care, then why should I? Yeah. Why yeah. should I put in the extra hours or whatever? It's an interesting tension, I suppose, that's there between... I don't always like to use like overcaring or undercaring, but there's just a tension between, well, what's the optimal amount? And maybe it's then how do you get the best out of people as yeah. a leader? Like what enables you to get the best out of yourself and the people that work for you? And I think sort of bringing this back to the context of the role and responsibility all leaders have and business leaders in particular because that's who I work with I think that's who you work with primarily as well have to build businesses that have a positive impact on the world around us and it can be a force for good I think there's a real tension there between having a holistic systemic view of the impact your work has on the world Right. So that's recognizing and taking steps to make sure you're having a positive impact on society, on environment, beyond the immediate of your employees and your customers. Right. There's a tension between having that holistic view, but also having the narrower focus required to actually get anything done and drive any progress. Right. There's a huge tension, I think, there. And it's almost a tension between whether you care or don't care. What do you care about and what do you choose to not care about? Right. Or maybe is it what do you care most about and what are you just passively trying to avoid doing harm around i think that that's a huge challenge right now because the economic system we've built it feels like to thrive to succeed businesses and individuals need to be like really narrowly focused and driven to be able to drive through but actually i think we need to broaden our outlook and think a bit more broadly. But I think that's really difficult and I don't have any answers to that. And I feel that's just the tension that everyone has to navigate is seeing the bigger picture and understanding and recognizing and being mindful and caring about your impact within it. But then also getting your head down and getting stuff done. And in a way, it almost brings us back to where we started the conversation because that has something to do with raising levels of consciousness. Because if I'm more aware of what my drivers are or what I'm choosing on an ongoing basis, then I'm going to choose more wisely. And yeah. I might not continue to push because I might realize that the pushing is creating its own tension in itself and actually maybe driving me away rather than moving me towards. Yeah. Yeah. And it's so hard to stop. And I, I think that's the thing, isn't it? You're just on this constant hamster wheel. No matter where you are, there's always work to be done. There's always work to be yeah. done. And it takes, I want to use the word big leader. And I don't mean that in, <laughs> I think it takes yeah. an individual who has done a lot of inner work to be able to influence a culture enough mm. to try a different way. Yeah. And yeah. you're not going to learn that, from what I know, yet in business school. No. I guess the leaders I can think of that bring that, it, yeah, it's not not come from business school. It's sort of come through serendipity in a way. It's come 
through sort of exposure to different philosophies and ways of being or through physical activity or sport or yoga or something and then trial and error through doing that at work but even then I'd, I'd never met anyone that can just sort of knows perfectly how to do it I don't think that exists right so they and the organizations in which they work need to be comfortable with high degrees of uncertainty and brave enough to do something that I would say no less proven than sort of orthodox ways of going about being a leader fundamentally but isn't orthodoxy so there's more pressure on you to prove that it'll work right yeah and we chase efficiency don't we and effectiveness and we mix them up yeah. I think we we think they're the same thing often and efficiency is great if I'm in a process driven organization that needs to produce something all the time like and we know exactly yeah. what that is but efficiency doesn't work when it comes to uncertainty yeah 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 and most of yeah. us are navigating uncertainty in the work that we have even if somebody has yeah. done it before us it's not going to be the same situation is it look at what we've lived through in the last few years yeah yeah totally my whole career has been spent around this bigger topic of how do you lead effectively how do you run a successful business operating in these spaces of un uncertainty and ambiguity initially because I would lived and worked in China and foreign businesses trying to do work in China it was all uncertain and ambiguous even the stuff you completely take for granted somewhere like the UK like rule of law was pretty ambiguous and uncertain, let alone like how are you going to make money and understanding consumer need and how that was changing at massive pace. And then latterly, well, still in China, but then also back in the UK in corporate innovation space. And yeah, I think it's all trial and error. Everyone's working it out and it's always a work in progress. And that's also the challenge for building that into education systems and business schools teaching that because they like to have a syllabus, right? They like to have a set of answers you can teach towards. So again, going back to Paolo Freire, he believed that whole model of education was wrong. He called that the banking system of education, which states, just like with capital, there's a finite number of people that own the bank. They own all the knowledge and knowledge is fixed. And everyone else is sort of begging at the door, asking for a release of capital. So the banking model of education is that like, I've got the knowledge there's a huge power imbalance, I will impart that knowledge to you, right? And he's like, that's bullshit. That's not how learning happens. And it's not actually true because knowledge isn't fixed and it doesn't fit like that. It's a changing thing. So his whole model was much more in line with what coaches do. But bear in mind, he was a teacher. So he was doing this in rural Brazil back in the 1960s is organizing people to do more self-directed learning and find their own way and create their own solutions, not to ignore knowledge, you know, not to ignore facts and data and about experiences and what's been done before, but to find your own way to that. And also recognize that all that facts and data and stuff that's been done before isn't set in stone. Like it's all somewhat ambiguous. History is just an aggregate set of people's opinions about what might have happened, right? Science yes, yeah. is just lots of hypotheses that have been tested to a greater or lesser extent right yeah yeah and things get overturned all the time or we get new evidence or <laughs> yeah 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 
Yeah. And, and finding your own path, the knowledge helps you start out, doesn't it? And especially now, there's probably too much data available. <laughs> but you can find what you're looking for and you can build off that. And and also yeah. there's cross-learning. I mean, I think, you know, you mentioned sports earlier on or, or yoga or whatever, but there's so much that you can bring from the world of sport, I think, into the world of business yeah. and high performance. And so if I want to work at my best, then that means having rest. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. This, well, this is an interesting one. So I've got a slightly controversial opinion on what can be taken from the world of sport into the world of business. And I remember years ago, a colleague of mine who was a bit of a contrarian was like, I hate the Olympics. He goes, I think with the Olympics, we idolize all the wrong things. And I actually, I, over time, I've come to agree with this because it's like what we're idolizing is people sacrificing ridiculous stuff because it's not just the sacrifices they make for themselves, right? Every elite athlete, their parents have put that child's need ahead of their other children's needs fundamentally to get to elite level. So they've compromised and the other kids have had to be fine with that, or it creates huge tension in families. Loads of people have sacrificed tremendous amounts, sometimes without any agency in this sacrifice, if they're a sibling rather than a parent, all in pursuit of something which is fundamentally pretty pointless, right? And by the time you get to 30, you've either got early onset dementia or your body's fucked. That as a model for business one that requires everything else in your life to take a massive backseat and to be fundamentally unsustainable, I think is really bad. There's plenty of coaches out there that are like Olympians going, I can teach you to do what I can teach you. I, I think the only reason to do that as a business leader is ego. I don't think there's any, you, you know, I don't know, unless you're just so purely outcome focused, but it brings us back to the external versus the internal, right? Like I, I see some of those coaches like, wow, you've got gold medals. How can I back up against you? I don't have any gold medals. I've just sort of muddled my way through life, failing more often than succeeding and somehow being able to have a family and keep a roof over my head along the way. But then on another level, I'm like, yeah, I don't like that model. I don't think it's right. I love sport. Don't get me wrong. I love the, I actually love the Olympics. And my favorite sport is, is, is tennis. Look at these guys like Rafa, Rafa Nadal and, and Roger Federer. Like they're going to be on crutches by the time they get out the back of their forties, right? Unless they look after themselves well, and a lot of them learn how to look after themselves. Yeah, well. yeah, I, they yeah, do. I'm being yeah, no, and I know. But... And as you were talking, it made me think about the way we look at high potentials in organizations. So we give this label to somebody mm. and then puts that pressure on them and they become that Olympian almost. And then yeah. the rest of the team are forgotten about, <laughs> like the siblings. <laughs> and that can set people up to fail as well, when actually yeah. all of us have massive amounts of potential. We're all capable yeah. of so much more than we realize. We just have to find our inner root. Yeah. Yeah. And I have a line from a story when I was a teenager that was in the equivalent of O-levels. Right. And there was this line in this story that I read that was about our inner personal root. Right. And that has stayed with me all my life. 
so much so that a year ago I went searching for the story right because I always thought it was about people like if I was on a train watching other people traveling their route and it wasn't until very recently it dawned on me that actually it was more about the internal journey right yeah and also it's so interesting because it's what's driven me I think all these years so it's fascinating we all have something probably from our like you said at the beginning from our earlier days that told us who we were we just have to reconnect with it at times yeah absolutely yeah now Phil believe it or not the time is up yeah yeah oh brilliant well I hope that you and our listeners got some value out of that. It felt quite rambling. We felt we covered some big stuff, but it was certainly a real pleasure talking to you, Susan. I really enjoyed it. It was brilliant, Phil. And if people would like to know more about you or connect with you, what's the best yeah. way of doing that? So you can go to my website, which is www.wearenotneutral.com. Or, of course, I'm on LinkedIn. So just Phil Dorman. If you Google Phil Dorman on LinkedIn, I'm pretty sure you'll find your way to me. And yeah, I, as I say, I coach the leaders who are, wrestling with working out what they stand for and kind of know that that's what they need in order to succeed where they are professionally but also really importantly find fulfillment that word that we talked about along the way and I think there's externally measured success and don't get me wrong it really matters but there's also thriving in the process of delivering that success and I think that is something we all ignore way too much and that's where I do a lot of work with my clients is like yeah let's help you get there but make sure you're enjoying it yeah oh it's so important and yeah I mean we did ramble a bit today these these conversations are I think necessary and it's obvious we don't have the answers but the more yeah. we talk about it the more we start to unravel more for ourselves too and hopefully maybe some listeners have some thoughts they'd like to share as well I'm always happy to hear them So thank you, Phil. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening. I hope you've enjoyed the paths we traversed on today's episode. If something rang through for you, be sure to let me know. Or maybe you can share this with someone in your life who would benefit from listening too. And if you enjoy helping others, I'd be so grateful if you would leave a review so that people who might also be curious about their own life beyond the numbers can discover this podcast too.